In the visions I saw while lying in my bed, I looked, and there before me was a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, Cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground, in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let him be given the mind of an animal, till seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict, so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men, and gives them to anyone he wishes, and sets over them the lowliest of men. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now... Balthazar, tell me what it means, for none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me. But you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, also called Balthazar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Balthazar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Balthazar answered, My lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the beasts of the field, and having nesting places in its branches for the birds of the air. You, O king, are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. You, O king, saw a messenger a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump, bound with iron and bronze, and the grass of the field, while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live like the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my lord, the king. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, O King, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is this not the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence, by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? The words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about King Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honoured and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion, 
His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisers and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven, because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning again. Do uh, take a seat. And if you've joined us since the beginning, a very warm welcome. It's lovely to see you here, especially if you're visiting. Uh, We love welcoming visitors each week. Do make sure you stay for tea and coffee afterwards. We'd love to welcome you more fully. As we begin, let's uh, pray to God for his help. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are a God who speaks and who is committed to removing our sin from us. As we've just sung, we wait the day when that will happen, that day of great hope. But we pray, Father, through your word, we long, cleanse us, show us our sin afresh, show us our pride, and give us the grace to repent and turn from it, that we might live rightly in your world. For Jesus' sake, amen. God reigns. God reigns. That is the truth we've seen from many angles these past few weeks, that despite appearances, it is the God of heaven and earth who reigns in this world. And today, that truth is about to become personal for King Nebuchadnezzar, the great king of Babylon. If you've been here the last few weeks, you'll remember that he and we, as we've looked on, have seen him getting something of God's power. He's seen that God is the one who gives wisdom as he reveals Nebuchadnezzar's amazing dream to Daniel. We've seen that God is the one who causes the rise and fall of nations. We've seen last week, it is God who has the power of life and death as he rescues Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego from the fiery furnace. And at the end of chapter 2 and chapter 3, King Nebuchadnezzar praises God. He writes a little hymn of prayer or words of uh, praise. But it seems to have made absolutely no impact in Nebuchadnezzar's life. But today, the light bulb is going to go on. He will humble himself and give praise from the bottom of his heart to God. In a sense, he will become a Christian. He'll become a believer. And it's my hope and prayer that as we see this, we too will be humbled. And if we're not believers, come to believe in this great God. And if we are, to renounce our pride and acknowledge that he is God and we are not. From time to time, at the front of church, we have people giving their testimonies. Testimonies are kind of churchy word. It just means a story of how God has dealt with us in our lives. In our young adults Bible study on Tuesday and Wednesday this week, we spent some time sharing testimonies of how God had worked. Well, hearing those things is tremendously encouraging. But imagine if tomorrow, as you got your post, if your post comes on a Monday, you had a, uh, a circular from the Prime Minister on government-headed paper, stamped with the Queen's stamp, giving praise for the way God had worked in her life. That is the scenario here in chapter 4. Look down at verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar, 
to the peoples, nations, and men of every language who live in all the world. May you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. Do you see, this is on government-headed paper. It's stamped with the seal of the emperor. I guess if we were Americans, it would come in 160-character messages broken into tweets. It's, it's wonderfully public. And I want to consider this testimony under three points. The first is this, a gracious warning. A gracious warning that God reigns. Gracious warning that God reigns. Look down at verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in my bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. It's a sense of deja vu, isn't there? We've seen this before in chapter 2 with a dream and the king quivering. Reminds us just how easy it is to go, I think, from a comfortable life to a shattered, miserable one. Just one phone call from the doctor. How many lives have been shattered in that way? We're very fragile beings, aren't we? Well, the sense of deja vu continues. Nebuchadnezzar makes a decree and sends for the wise men. They come in and then, verse 7, we see they could not interpret the dream. So, finally, the king sends for Daniel, also called Belteshazzar. And we see verse 9, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. King Nebuchadnezzar knows there's something different about Daniel. He, he claims it's the spirit of the holy gods. Po possibly that could be the holy god. But either way, however Nebuchadnezzar understands it, we know it's because Daniel knows the king of heaven. And then we hear the dream. Verse 10 to 17, we see the dream there. It's a terribly vivid dream. It begins with this enormous tree, a symbol in the literature of the day of a great empire or a great king. And this is a terrific tree. It reaches all the way to the top of heaven. And it's beautiful. It's fruitful. All the birds and the beasts of the land come and shelter in its shade. But then, suddenly, verse 14, the tranquility is broken. A messenger, an angel, comes and commands, cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. Just the stump is to be left. Well, the spotlight falls on Daniel, verse 19. But just notice his response. It's quite a striking response. He's perplexed. We see... Daniel was greatly perplexed for a time and his thoughts terrified him. And so the king encourages him, don't let the dream or its meaning alarm you. And Daniel answers, my lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies. It's a striking response. Remember, Daniel was on Nebuchadnezzar's command, dragged from his hometown as a young teenager. He's seen his friends killed. He's seen his homeland plundered. But as he knows this is something to do with Nebuchadnezzar's downfall, he doesn't rub his hands in glee. He isn't glad that his enemy has got his comeuppance. No, he's distressed. It's just a challenge, I think, as we look around at a world under God's judgment, heading towards a final judgment day. Are we distressed like this? 
Well, then Daniel tells the interpretation. And we see it's a gracious warning. Verse 22, you, O king, are that tree. You've become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. At its zenith, Babylon ruled over most of the Middle East, from the Nile in the southwest in Egypt, all the way up to Aleppo in the northwest, right across to Kuwait. Huge empire. And at its time, most of the known world relied upon Babylon for their prosperity and security. But that tree will be cut down. And the focus isn't so much on the humbling of the empire, so much as on the humbling of the emperor. You'll be driven, verse 25, away from the peoples and will live with the wild animals. You'll eat grass like a cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. But a stump remains, and with it the possibility of restoration at the end of the period. And you see in verse 25, the whole aim is that Nebuchadnezzar would recognize God reigns. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge the Most High as sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. This is the point of the dream. It's the point of the whole chapter. This same expression comes up in verse 32 and also in verse 17. Just uh, let's look at verse 17 because we see this isn't just for Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 17 says this, this will happen so that the living, all the living, may know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of men. This great court circular is sent out so that we and all those before us may know God reigns. Well, it's a tremendous warning to Nebuchadnezzar. But do you see it's a gracious warning? Nebuchadnezzar needs to learn the lesson and then he'll be restored. That stump is there. And verse 26 tells us, when you acknowledge, this means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. And so Daniel pleads with the king. In short, he says, repent. Verse 27, maybe this disaster will be averted. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that your prosperity will continue. Nebuchadnezzar seen again and again God's power. But it's not enough just to acknowledge it in his mind or with a few words of the pen. He needs to change his life. It's a real sense, isn't there? That this is like the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news of Jesus Christ tells us Jesus is Lord. It's a wonderful message. There is a Lord ruling this world that seems so chaotic. But the sting in the tail is if Jesus is Lord then I am not, and nor are you. And it means if we live like Nebuchadnezzar, as our own little lords in this world, we find ourselves God's enemy. And if we're God's enemy, the warning is he'll humble us. But it's a gracious warning, because of course the gospel tells us that Jesus died to bring rebels back to himself. That if we'll just acknowledge Jesus is Lord, if we'll turn from our sins and believe the gospel, then we'll be welcomed, not as prisoners, not as outcasts, but as family members into God's kingdom. It's a wonderful, gracious warning. But the tragedy is, so many hear it and do nothing. Well, the question is, what will Nebuchadnezzar do? 
Does this scary experience get him anywhere? Twelve months of silence. And then one evening, he's strolling on the palace roof in the sunset, verse 29, and he, as he looks down, he's thrilled by what he sees. Is this not great Babylon? And it truly was. Nebuchadnezzar was a great builder. He looks down on a city with two sets of walls. They're about 40 feet high. And outside the walls is a tremendous moat. This is impregnable Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar restored many temples to their finery. He himself had three palaces within inside the city, built the uh, hanging gardens, one of the wonders of the ancient world. Well, as he looks down, he marvels and pats himself on the back. Is not this great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? What is he still purring? The voice comes, verse 31 from heaven. This is what's decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. And here's the second point. Pride refuses to acknowledge that God reigns. Pride refuses to acknowledge that God reigns. C.S. Lewis called pride the great sin. It's a sin from which all other sins flows. He went on to say it's the complete anti-God state of mind. Because pride says the world's all about me. I'm the centre of the universe. It's as if we've staged a revolution against heaven. And if I live as the centre of the universe, then I demand that everything revolves around me. All must serve me and my demands. But of course, God is the one who reigns. But it's easy, isn't it, to slip into this kind of mentality. Maybe we look at our career or the lovely home we've built and we think, my cleverness, my hard work, my skill has earned me all this. Maybe look at our kids. What wonderful kids I have. So clever, just like me. Or maybe, and, and the seductiveness is, there's some truth in it, isn't there? The, uh, we only get a good career and a lovely house in part by hard work. If we're lazy, then by and large we miss those things. And so it's seductive. But we forget who is the one who gives us the skills, the talents, the life, the breath, the opportunities, who spares us ill health, all of its God. And the proud person, when everything's going wrong, when everything's going right, is tempted to praise himself. But when everything's going wrong, he's tempted to blame God. Or maybe it's not so much we see our achievements. Maybe actually we look around and we see chaos and we just feel like we're on a, one of those hamster wheels. And we think, unless I keep spinning that wheel, everything's going to fall apart. My office is crazy. My family well, they may not be crazy, but life's crazy. And if I stop, it will all fall apart. And of course, there are seasons when we need to be very, very busy. But if we can never stop, if we can never sleep at night because we're worrying, then maybe there's a sense we need to check, are we beginning to behave like God? We're indispensable. As Roman generals return from conquering 
uh, foreign lands. The, the Senate would sometimes decide to honour them in a, in a, with a fantastic parade. And they would parade into Rome with uh, all their armies behind them and all the spoils of war and sometimes fantastical animals and all these kind of things in, in their tow. It's a fantastic sight. And on the head chariot with the general, there stood the, the general and behind him a slave. The slave had two jobs, one of which was to hold a laurel kind of crown over the general's head to honour him. He's a man honoured by Rome. The other was to whisper in his ear, memento homo, memento homo, remember you're a man, remember you're a man, just a man. And I wonder if there's a sense, some of us in our diaries, we need to write, just a woman, just a man. Maybe on our greatest achievement, mentally, we need to stick a post-it note, I'm just a man, just a woman. Because the danger is that pride refuses to acknowledge that God reigns. But God does reign. And he humbles those who are proud. And that's exactly what happens to Nebuchadnezzar. The dream is fulfilled. Verse 33. He was driven away from people and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. You might wonder what on earth is going on here. I think in one sense this is a picture of the beastliness of uh, pride. I wonder if you've ever seen those little pictures of, e of how they think evolution happened. This is not a comment about evolution, don't, don't worry. But um, you, you can think of those pictures where kind of monkey-like uh, humans are gradually standing up taller and taller and taller. And the world says to us, they'll get to a point where man is able to stand up totally tall, puff out his chest and throw off religion. Nietzsche talked about ridding the society of the slave morality of Christianity. Throw away the crutch and stand up proud. And yet the opposite is in fact true. The more we throw off God, the more we try and live as gods in God's world, we become beastly. Beastly individually, as I think I should be worshipped. And then as you think you should be worshipped, how does society become beastly as it's made up of individual kings and queens? More and more beastly. But it's much more than a picture. Some people look at this and think the Bible's nonsense. In actual fact, this is a rare but documented illness called boanthropy. The uh, sufferer believes that they're a cow or a bull, and so they act accordingly. One scholar observed uh, a patient in the 1940s. Let me read a little bit of the description. He saw a man in his early 20s in fine bodily health, but decidedly antisocial, who spent whole days from dawn to dusk outside on the institution's grounds. The uh, carers gave him water from a clean container so that he didn't lick it from puddles. As he wandered over the grounds, he would pick up chunks of grass and eat them. The only physical abnormality noted was a lengthening of the fingernails and a coarsening of the hair. Doesn't that sound just like Nebuchadnezzar? That great king, the most powerful man on earth, behaving like a cow in his garden. So sad. But do we see the hope? This will continue for seven times, probably seven years. But when he acknowledges God reigns, there's the hope of restoration. And before we consider that, just see again God's great mercy and grace to Nebuchadnezzar. C.S. Lewis, who I mentioned earlier, had some friends, and they became Christians. First, the wife, 
believed, and then after that, the husband believed. Tragically, the wife soon developed uh, a liver disease, and after a struggle, she died. But it was as she died, her husband realized he'd never really believed in Christ. He'd wanted to please his wife, but his profession of faith was more about her than about Jesus. And as he realized that, he was enabled to repent, to own his own pride, and acknowledge he'd been living as a God in God's world, and to make peace with Jesus. And C.S. Lewis wrote to him, you've been treated with a severe mercy. Severe because it cost him everything, his beloved wife. And yet a great mercy because in God's goodness he was enabled to repent, to make peace with Jesus before the great humbling that will be the day of judgment. It's the sense that I guess he wished he'd heard the wake-up call sooner, but grateful for that severe mercy. Some of you know that Charlie and I spent just under five years in Japan. We thought we'd be there for life. And it was a severe mercy that brought us home. We were desperate to have good language. And um, part of that was a good motivation to uh, be able to speak the gospel clearly to Japanese people. But underneath it was an ugly pride. We looked at other missionaries who really couldn't preach because they, they didn't have the necessary language. And that pride drove us on. And time is short, so I'll cut a long story short. But at the end of the time, we were spiritually and physically broken. We came home for a scheduled home assignment at the end of four and a half years and pretty much had a a year off. But it was a severe mercy. I was unable to see my pride and to repent. And I trembled somewhat to think if that hadn't happened, if I hadn't been in the pressure cooker of Japan in a new language with my pride exposed, I could have been a minister in England and fudged my pride for 20 years. But it could well have wrecked my marriage, my faith, quite possibly blown a church up. This is a severe and painful mercy. Now, friends, not every tragedy, not every pain is caused by our pride. But sometimes it is. And maybe there's some here whom God is calling to repent. Acknowledge your pride. Turn back and find his grace. Whoever we are, whether it's caused by pride or not, he longs that in that we turn back to him and find his comfort. Acknowledge that he is God and we are not, and his ways are mysterious. Well, briefly, the third point. The rational person confesses God reigns. The rational person confesses God reigns. At the end of the time, Nebuchadnezzar learns his lesson. Verse 34, at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High and I honoured and glorified him who lives forever. Isn't that the opposite of what we think? We think it's insane, irrational to worship a God we cannot see. And yet quite the opposite is true. It's the ultimate insanity to pretend we're gods in God's world. No, the rational person is humble, acknowledges their position, and so worships God. And as Nebuchadnezzar sees himself aright, he praises God. Verse 34, I praise the Most High, I honoured and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is eternal, his kingdom endures forever, from generation to generation. Well, as Nebuchadnezzar is restored, as his sanity is restored, so is his honour and splendour. It's a remarkable token of God's kindness to him. 
that this proud king is restored. And you can imagine the Jews looking on as they heard of him being humbled. They thought, how wonderful, our enemy is now acting like a cow in his back garden. And yet they hear that Nebuchadnezzar is restored, and not just restored, he's made even greater. They must have thought, God, what are you doing? And yet, it reminds us, God is gracious to all who turn back to him. He was a megalomaniac, killed God's people, plundered God's temple, and yet God had mercy. And friends, isn't that a great encouragement to us as we finish? I guess there are some here, maybe both Christians and those who who wouldn't call themselves Christians, who in their heart of hearts harbor a secret. And they know and think, if, if others knew, they'd be shocked. But God is not shockable. God knows. And even a megalomaniac like Nebuchadnezzar can find grace. Well, friend, how much more grace is for you at the cross? No need to hide. Just acknowledge your pride. Humble yourself before Jesus and find grace and restoration. And you see the encouragement, too, for those who we think are beyond salvation. Look at that last verse. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. It's a warning. We'll see that warning next week. But what a promise. There's no one outside of the reach of his grace. Maybe you pray for a friend, colleague, family member. You just think they could never believe. They're far too self-centered, too wrapped up in their own world. Well, be encouraged. God reigns. He's able to humble even Nebuchadnezzar. So our friends, family members, are no problem for God. Well, as the Jews heard this tremendous testimony, it would have given them courage to serve and honor God in a foreign land. As we hear this word, as we reflect on his grace to us personally at the Lord's table in a few moments, let's take courage. God reigns. Let's put him first in this foreign land. Let's pray together. Father, we do praise you that you reign, and we praise you for your gracious warning to us personally. We praise you for warning Nebuchadnezzar, and we praise you for giving us the grace to humble ourselves and acknowledge Jesus is Lord. We pray for those maybe in this room or outside who do not know that. We long have mercy on them, that they too may live rightly in your world, honoring your Son. For Jesus' sake. Amen.